Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to stimulate thought, expand consciousness, and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that the vast majority of we humans are friendly, tribal animals, and when we live in small enough communities in which we know each person by name and or face, we are collaborative enough to provide everyone with adequate food, shelter, health care, and education. Our distinguished guest today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is Dr. Thomas Roberts. Dr. Roberts is a pioneer in studying, researching, writing about, lecturing, and ingesting all things psychedelic. Stay tuned for this enlightening and exciting conversation with Dr. Thomas Roberts. For close to 20 years, I have hosted broadcasts and brought our listeners people of high integrity, be they scientists and sex workers, authors and artists, patients and doctors, unknowns and famous. The guests have the opportunity to share what they have learned, what they have come to believe, and what is currently most important in their lives. I have asked questions, hopefully with kindness of tone, the answers, answers to which give listeners information, knowledge, and sometimes wisdom. Our program is about information dissemination for social change. Today we have a truly challenging situation to resolve, and I'm very glad you're listening. We're experiencing a pandemic that will warrant at least a footnote in our history. It's about one year since the beginning of the pandemic, and over 500,000 people have perished. We have little idea how much those who have been infected and survived will suffer in the future. After one year of wearing masks, social distancing, and living with the close-down of restaurants, coffee houses, theaters, stadiums, and our other gathering places, many are tired. After one year of significantly reduced human contact, many of us are experiencing pandemic fatigue. And yet, we are still a country at war. And I fully believe we are at war because our situation passes the test of being at war. We are being invaded. The invaders are injuring people. The invaders are killing people. I care not if the invader is microscopic or gigantic. When our country is being invaded and the invaders are injuring and killing our citizens, we are at war. We must both protect ourselves and eliminate the invader down to its subatomic particles. I trust you will sign on and join me in this national war, but if you want to sit this one out, or perhaps perhaps watch from hopefully safe distance, well, it's your right. Uh, remember, one-third of America set out our American Revolution, and we still defeated England, which at that time had the strongest army in the world. However, you cannot sit this particular war out and be allowed to spread disease. There can be no such thing as a smoking section in an airplane. We must have a high percentage of cooperation to win this war. We must cooperate by continuing to wear masks, distancing socially, and I say with consideration 
get vaccinated. We have two matters to consider. One, the viral variants, which we are being told by Dr. Fauci are coming our way. And two, the vaccinations themselves. Let's look at one, the variants. Dr. Fauci is warning us that the variants are coming this month, that they will be more severe than COVID-19, and that the vaccinations we are getting from Pfizer and Moderna, Aztec, Zeneca, Johnson & Johnson, will not fully protect us. If we listen to him, we continue to mask up and socially distance. From a risk-reward perspective, we best listen to him for better to wear a mask when unneeded, thereby risking inconvenience, than not wear a mask when needed, thereby risking morbidity and mortality. Two, the vaccinations. Science has been undermined and politicized by our criminal former president. Pharmaceutical companies allow themselves to be swayed by profits and politicians. With science politicized and trust and credibility undermined, it's understandable that we cannot know how long it will take for the American population to be comfortable accepting vaccinations. If only 10 or 20 percent of the public decline vaccinations, we have 33 to 66 million people subject to infection and contagion. Such large numbers of unvaccinated will de facto create a smoking section in an airplane, or you could say a special pissing section in the national swimming pool. And so, dear friends, at this time, I believe we must be prepared to continue to wear our masks, socially distance, and gather in pods, or what I call quarantines. That's quarantines, T-E-A-M-S. Anything less increases risk. Well, each of us must decide on our risk-reward ratio. Our distinguished guest today, Dr. Thomas Roberts, is a risk-taker. He has risked his entire professional career by researching, writing about, lecturing, and ingesting psychedelics. Some of Dr. Roberts' books include Psychedelics and Spirituality, Psychedelic Horizons, Spiritual Growth Within Theogens, Religion and Psychoactive Sacraments, Mind Apps that he wrote with Jim Fadiman. Some of you have heard Jim Fadiman our program many times. Also, The Psychedelic Future of the Mind. Just some of the books. Go to Amazon. Look up Thomas Roberts and his psychedelic books. Dr. Roberts is a founding member of MAPS. Remember MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies? Remember Rick Doblin? He's been on this program several times. Check out MAPS on Google. Dr. Roberts taught the, taught the world's first university catalog course on psychedelic studies way back 40 years ago in 1981. Imagine that. Wow. He taught it as an honors course at, course at Northern Illinois University. In his spare time, he originated the celebration of Bicycle Day. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Tom. Oh, thank you. Thank you. How are you today? Um, pretty well, thank you. 
We're having a, for us to warm weather in the 40s. And let's see, are you in Carbondale, Illinois? No, I'm in Sycamore, Illinois, 65 miles west of Chicago. Okay. So today, I'm sure we'll have time to for you to reference various of your works, but the main topic is Confessions of a Psychedelic Elder. Let's go, let's go, you are an elder, how old are you? I'll be 83 at the end of this month. Okay, so you're about a year older than I am. We're both elders. And take us back to your earliest memory of your introduction to psychoactive substances. Um, you want to include marijuana in that, I guess? Uh, if you'd like, you're an expert. If you'd like to include marijuana, start with marijuana. Um uh, well, I don't consider marijuana psychedelic. My, the first time I smoked was in Mexico City in September of 1961 at the celebration of the Mexican um, Independence Day. And then very intermittently there until, let's say, 19, in the 1960s. When I got, first got interested in psychedelics, I was working on my master's degree at the University of Connecticut. Let me interrupt you, Thomas. Uh, Tom, tell us a little about your early experiences with marijuana, and then we'll move into the other substances. What, what, what can you tell us about it? I mean, this is 1961. It's 60 years ago. It's a very illegal substance in the United States. You were in Mexico. They had a different attitude. What can you tell us about your experience? Um, well, um, um Four of us went down to Mexico, and um, the woman who was one of our drivers um, was much more into Mexican and marijuana than we were, and uh, we were staying at this little motel, and she went out to find some marijuana, which for me at that time was a very dangerous sort of thing, you know, all the things that we kids are told about marijuana in those days. And she came back with some, and we smoked it. And um, I didn't feel particularly strange, although as I lay in the bed and looked at the key ceiling, there were water spots on the ceiling. They looked very much like a, an arabesque sort of a temple or dome. And I, I realized that I was projecting some some meaning in, into that. And that was, that was basically it, although we also smoked a little bit in um, Mexico City. Um, she went out again I thought she was being sort of dangerous, but she asked somebody where she'd get marijuana, and he took her someplace and brought her back, and oh, I was glad to see that she got back. Um, so that was basically it, and then probably between there and the end of the middle of 1960s, very occasional smokers. Were you in school? Were you in school when you went down there with those three other fellows? I had just graduated from college. And were you about to go to graduate school? No. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't like college. I didn't want anything to do with college again. And now here I am teaching in a college of education. <laughs> Life has a funny way of sneaking up on you. Yeah. Um, so I worked in New York City for a couple of years um, for a place called Alexander Hamilton Institute. They were a publisher of books for... Um, sort of home study for people who were 
in business and wanted to move up um, in the corporate hierarchy. And I helped edit in business um, business and financial newsletters. I was an English major, so it was an English major sort of job that I got into in New York. And then um, um, from there, I, I traveled um, in the West for a while. I lived in New York City and San Francisco for a couple of years. And then in 1965, got a job at the University of Connecticut running their college work study program, which is part of the financial aid office. And that's what really got me going back into higher education, much to my surprise. And then, so then we're in the, <clears throat> in the 1960s, New York, San Francisco, now you're in Connecticut, and um, you had smoked marijuana, tried marijuana, and then what was your first then uh, psychedelic experience? My first psychedelic experience wasn't until February 1970, quite a few years after that. Um, in, in 1967, I, I started my do doctoral program at Stanford. Um, I just drove to Connecticut, from Connecticut to San Francisco, and that was the year when the new radio was playing. When you drive to San Francisco, go to San Francisco, be sure to wear some flowers in your hair. Well, I enjoyed sort of hearing that. I was going to San Francisco, but I had no interest whatsoever in psychedelics myself. And that was for them, for the hippies out there. Um, but it was fun hearing about it. But that was, that was, psychedelics was something those other people did, and it's now around 1970, and you're in graduate school at Stanford, and you're about 30 years old? Yeah, 1967, let's see, yes, that would have been, um, yeah, about 29 or 30. Right. right. Mm -hmm. yeah. And um, I was doing my dissertation on Maslow's needs hierarchy. There was a professor who had studied Maslow, uh, L., uh, Willis Harmon, who is well-known in psychedelia. And um, so I wanted to take a class with him to see what he knew about Maslow. And he was teaching a course called Graduate Special Human Potentiality. So I signed up for it. Actually, I had to sign up for it two quarters in advance. There was a long waiting list to get in. It was available only to graduate students at Stanford from many, any backgrounds. And he had a long list. And so I signed up for the class to find out what he knew about Maslow. And Willis is a very open-minded sort of person. The class talked about all kinds of things that were really sort of very fringy at the time, things like uh, meditation. I mean, if you're interested in meditation in graduate school at that time, people would sort of think you're kind of, you know, a little weird. Um, and um, so we, we studied the various things, meditation, hypnosis, and one day, uh, this married couple came into the class. The class was probably 25 people seated around a large table. So it was a nice informal seminar event. And they started to describe their first psychedelic experience the previous Saturday. You know, flowers moving in a vase and difficult in describing things. And uh, people in class looked and nodded and commented. And they turned out, and with this, very select group of graduate students from Stanford, from the engineering and, um, and liberal arts, um, I'd say probably maybe three quarters of them had their, their own um, psychedelic experiences. And this is the first time I'd ever heard anybody talk about the psychedelic experience 
And here I was in this very select group of graduate students at Stanford, and many of them had done psychedelics. So that didn't fit in with what I thought I knew at all. I had the, the idea of, you know, the, the psychedelic guy as being this very aseptic, uh, crazy-looking guy, wild in the eyes, and uh, probably <laughs> not very well attached to reality. You know, that that, that was my idea of a, of a idea of psychedelics. The national stereotype. That's, that's right. But these were advanced graduate students at Stanford. <laughs> uh-huh. They did not fit that stereotype in the least. So, and they were, they were all working on their doctorates. Yes. As right. you were. What yeah. years were you at Stanford, Tom? Uh, 67 to 70. Okay. We overlapped. I was uh, on the faculty there for one year. I was part of Irving Yalom's study. Oh, oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, the Stanford has a lot of background in psychedelics. It would make a very interesting book for somebody to chase it. Well, Ken Kesey, for example. Right, down the street. And yeah, uh, did you do you live you live in Perry Lane? No, I said he lived. He was right down the street from Stanford doing his work on the work on Perry Lane. Yes. Yeah, I have an uncle who lived on Perry Lane in the nineteen twenties. Wow. And it was just a little shack. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so that that got me interested in, and I realized one could become interested in in psychedelics um, and not be a crazy loon. And that was that was a surprise. There was a guy in my class um, who was a newspaper reporter from the Minneapolis Star Tribune or whatever it is in Minneapolis, and he had received some sort of grant to go to uh, to go to Stanford and and work on something or other. And at that time, Steph, uh, Esselin had a program called Esselin at Stanford, and they would bring up the people from Esselin for a weekend workshop at Stanford because Stanford kids couldn't afford to go down to Big Sur for the weekend, so they brought it up. And this guy had tickets to something, and bought tickets, and he couldn't use them. He gave one to me. And I thought, well, you know, I don't have any idea who this guy is who's talking, um, but I'll go, and if I don't, I'll come out leave, you know. So I got a free ticket, and I went to hear this guy talking about religion, East and West, and psychedelics and religion. It was Alan Watts, and I was blown away. <laughs> He was this erudite, witty, British scholar talking about a field that I knew nothing about and saying that it's possible psychedelics have something to do with religion. And again, that didn't fit in with what I thought I knew. So that class was jolted my mind a couple times. And that was basically how I got interested in psychedelics. But I was working on a doctorate, so I, I couldn't really do any um, for a couple of years. You know, I had a doctorate to work on. And what was the title of your doctoral dissertation? <laughs> Something like a, an application of Maslow's needs hierarchy to a study of education. And I used Maslow's needs hierarchy to study a study that had been done at Bennington College in Vermont and show that you could use the needs hierarchy to interpret the study. I asked Maslow to be on, on my dissertation committee. At that time, he was living in Menlo Park, just adjacent to Stanford. And he said um, he liked the idea, but he'd probably crap out on me, meaning die. And in fact, he would have. Um, he died in 1970, and I didn't finish my dissertation until 1972. So, But he was very enthusiastic. He tried telling me about an area of psychology he was interested in. And I, well, it didn't make sense to me at all. It was about it was beyond self-actualization and about transcending the ego and stuff like that. Uh-huh. I, 
just I just sort of rolled off my mind with with no understanding of it at all. Mm -hmm. Of course, he was one of the founders of transpersonal psychology. I wish I had caught on earlier. Mm -hmm. The the way I happened to get involved with that uh, Stanford and uh, the faculty position I had was I I lived at Esalen in the uh, the summer of 1967. I I was teaching at Michigan in Ann Arbor, and we were on the uh, trimester system, four months, four months, and four months. So if you taught two of those in a row, then you got the third one off. And I took that third month, uh, four months off, and I lived at Esalen, and I was very lucky. It was the summer of 1967, called the Summer of Love. Oh, yeah. You're lucky. I was very lucky. Everyone was there that summer, including Maslow, of course. Yeah. Exciting time. Okay, so there you are. You're, You're absorbing all this information but you haven't ingested one of these uh, molecules yet. <coughs> Bless you. That's right. Um, and um, my first experience was in February 1970 at Lake Tahoe. Um, some friends of mine and I went up there, and I intentionally did no reading in psychedelics until then. I, I wanted to go with sort of a clear mind. And um, we went up. Um, two friends of mine and I, and uh, we stayed overnight at a, a little cabin up there. And um, um, while I had my first experience, I, I was seated down at the edge of the lake in an old wicker chair that I think somebody had thrown away and it washed up on shore in terrible shape. But I sat there and watched the clouds roll overhead. And uh, there was this sort of dog with this sort of infected eye came by and looked like he needed attention. Um, but what interesting with me is that I was not so much interested in the perceptual things. I mean, it was a beautiful day, and here I was at the edge of Lake Tahoe in winter, so things were black and white and gray, and far, at the far end of the lake were a couple of bright neon signs, but I got, I got a sense that there was something about this that was fascinating, other than just the perception, so I'm not a perceptual type person. I knew that there's something interesting. I had no idea what it was. And that sort of started me the idea of trying to chase down this material, mysterious feeling of something odd and important going on. But I couldn't say just what it was. So that started me reading um, psychedelic. Okay, let's, let me back up a bit with a couple of things you said. First of all, what was it that you ingested and how much of it did you ingest? It was LSD... Um, it was pill form, and I don't know the strength. It's whatever would have been common in the Bay Area at that time. So my guess it would have been, well, well over 100, maybe 200. 200 to 250, which is what was common in those days. But yeah. you, could, you could compare it to your later experiences and probably uh, zero in on it a little more. So you, yeah, you, I, you, you took certainly... Sun, sun, sunshine that summer. Yes. And, and I'd say it was about the same. Okay. Well, the Sunshine people, yeah, I know them. They were doing about you know, 200 and 250. And when you say you're not a perceptual person, what did you mean by that, please? I mean that um, most, a lot of people who are interested in psychedelics are interested in things they, they see, you know, things moving and colors. And I like that. I was interested in it. But that, to me, there was something behind that. What's going on that does that? See, I'm interested in the human mind and the development of the human mind. 
But what does this say about the human mind? <clears throat> and there's a sense that there's something portentous and important about this, not just the sensory stuff. And it's that, and as, as someone was interested in ideas, and Ted, now looking back on it, I could say I felt there was some ideas here that I didn't know what they were, and I wanted to find out about them. Fasting forward just for a moment, Tom. Did you know Leo Zeff? No, I never met him. Well, but you know, of course, you know who he who he was. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, he was a friend of mine and a and a mentor and a and a neighbor. Uh, those of you who are listening, you you want to check out Dr. Leo Zeff. He was also called the Secret Chief, and there's a book written about him called The Secret Chief, and uh, he was well known for. Uh, guiding people on journeys way back before anybody else was. And he literally guided hundreds of people from around the world. Uh, he guided me many times. Uh, I, was, I was lucky. I, I lived down the street from Leo. Um, and um, the reason I'm bringing him up now is because it's related to what you just said about the difference between looking outside of oneself while we're under the influence of these uh, substances uh, for perceptual changes and looking inside. Because when Leo guided a person on a trip, it was always with blindfolds. So the entire experience was inside. There was no outside. And of course, he was a clinical psychologist, so he was you know, in line with your thinking about there must be more about the mind we can learn rather than just be going to a happy movie of looking at perceptual changes in the clouds, the trees, and, 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 the, uh, and the walls uh, uh, liquefying. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I was certainly fascinated by the perceptual aspect of it, but it's the sense that there was something else that really sort of grabbed my attention. Yes. So that was the first time with your three friends in Tahoe sitting in that chair. And then take us to the next time, please. Um, well, um, I was uh, living in a house and um, I was house sitting for some people who were away um, in Los Altos Hills. And um, so I was house sitting there from um, probably February through July and had probably three or four trips there in a nice, wonderful, it had been an, an apricot orchard before that with apricot trees around and a nice old house with a yard. So those were, I guess I could call those primarily sensory trips. And then I came, I drove to Northern Illinois University to start my job in the middle of August. Okay, what year are we in now, Tom? 1970. We were in 1970, so you started at uh, Northern Illinois. You still hadn't finished your doctorate because you didn't finish that till 72 or 73. But you, right. you took your faculty position. You must have been EBD, everything but dissertation. That's right. That's exactly right. You'd already passed your orals? Yeah. Yeah, um, except... I thought I, would, I thought I would finish it in one year if I just got into teaching and doing a lot of other things. Well, you also picked a topic... That was a time-consuming piece of research. I tip my hat to you for that. Uh, uh, working with uh, with Maslow's uh, uh, needs. That was very lucky. I just ran across him by chance. I, at Stanford, I planned to get a, a, a PhD in education and an MBA, and then to go into some sort of a business that would have to do with education. And I ran across uh, Maslow in one of the. Um, 
um, human potentiality courses in the School of Business. Uh-huh. And then I realized I could use this idea other places, and that's the way that those pieces fell together. Do you happen to recall how many pages your dissertation was? <laughs> the draft was something like 600, and the final copy was 141. The problem was, everything I read, I thought, oh, this has to do with Maslow. This, and I tried to put it all together. And finally, I, I realized I just couldn't include everything. And also, thanks to a dissertation advisor, I, he said, okay, do, do, do your one study and leave, leave the rest for later. So there's these little quote paragraphs in there that saying, this also has to do with Maslow, but it's beyond the scope of this dissertation. Oh, my, yeah. 600 pages, Tom. And you cut it down to 141? Yeah. Uh, so I had a friend like you, Dr. Richard Gatley. And we went through graduate school. And I watched him and I watched others do these magnum opus, 600 pages, cut down to 400, cut down to 300. So I'm pleased to report that I did, an, even though I was a, a clinician, I did an experimental dissertation, and my dissertation was less than 30 pages. But, but it, it, had, it didn't have very much to do with our work. It was on the, the pupillary response uh, as an indication of uh, emotional activity. Oh. Yeah. The, 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 title, the title alone was almost longer than my dissertation. It was the effect of chromatic and achromatic stimuli upon pupil responsivity. The, sounds like a good dissertationary type title. It was a great dissertation for finishing. I got out of there lickety split. It was, as I said, less than 30 pages. Of course, I had to sit and measure thousands and thousands of pupils. Because uh, in those days, that had to be done by hand with a ruler. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. That reminds me, Stan Groff told me that originally people thought that an indication of people taking psychedelics was expanded pupils. But he found with his patients, some pupils expanded and some contracted. Yeah, and, and often it's both. They'll expand at first and then uh, they start to contract. I, I'll share with you, Tom, the one good piece of information I got out of my dissertation that actually has lasted my whole life is I learned that blue is the most universally accepted color on the planet at a very deep emotional level. Uh, including the pupillary response. So when when I went for my, my first postdoctoral interview uh, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, I wore nothing but blue. If I could have had blue underwear, I would have been wearing blue underwear. I had blue socks, blue suit, blue everything. And I got the job. I was really happy. <laughs> <Good move. laughs> nice going. Yes. Okay, let's take us uh, le- uh, along this path now. We're still back in the early 1970s. You're at North, uh, Northern Illinois University. It is in Carbondale, as memory serves. No, no. It's not? No, that's another university. In oh. Carbondale. Southern is in Car- Carbondale. Oh, Northern. that's right. Bucky Fuller was at Carbondale at Southern. Northern is yeah. in where? DeKalb. DeKalb. You know the, corn, the flying corn cob? Yeah. I should know. I went to the University of Illinois in Champaign. I should know that. I'm oh, yeah. Okay, you're teaching there. Take us on your next psychedelic experience, please. Um, well, I made some friends um, there who had psychedelics. Made them friends quite easily. And uh, so I had a lot of um, experiences. Um, 
I don't know if it would be one a month or so for probably my first year, maybe first and second year. It varied a lot from time to time, depending on what's available and what was going on in my life. Um, so I would have those basically either with one person or alone. Um, and let's see, that would probably be probably for a year or two like that. Oh, I went, I went uh, to Europe in the summer. Actually, I took some with me to Europe. I planned a trip in the Alps, but I got so involved doing other things that I didn't, and I washed them down the drain in Amsterdam. So, Tom, you're in you're you're in a DeKalb. It's the early '70s. You're taking LSD once a month. You're you're working on your dissertation. You're teaching. You're not ter- you're not turning into one of these funny-looking, weird-eyed, shabbily dressed. Who knows what? You're just a regular person. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, th- I think psychedelics can be part of the ordinary life. They don't have to be part of uh, some an outlander's life. Part of the ordinary life. Okay. Yeah. Then you have the something as a risk taker to go from the United States to Europe carrying LSD. Had you been apprehended your career would have been over. You would have been, a good chance you would have been in jail. That's right. Did you think about that at the time? Probably, but I thought I could get away with it, and I did. Because it was, it's such a tiny thing. Oh, that reminds me, you know, I, I bought a car in Sweden, and I, I drove. And um, I picked up hitchhikers. Uh, driving back to Sweden uh, so the car could be shipped back, I picked up this... Uh, young American guy um, in Switzerland. And um, he told me a story that he had been hitchhiking. He was sort of a, a not a hip, kind of scruffy look. Well, he had read the book, Europe on five and $10 a day. And he wanted to live in Europe on five or $10 a day. And he took, didn't take enough money. And so he was sort of getting by as best he could. He told me that coming out of Switzerland once, um, he went to Germany and um, they asked him, you know, uh, the the border the patrol border patrol guys you know asked him um, do you have any chocolate and he said no I ate it all in Switzerland and the border patrol guy said do you have LSD and he said no I ate it all in Switzerland <laughs> the German guy burst out laughing and went in another guy came out and asked him the same questions and went back and then a third guy came out and asked him the same question so we got all the the border guards in Germany have a good laugh over over his line. Yeah, well, I came back to Northern and started teaching again in the fall. Probably did psychedelics about as often then. Okay, so we're now still in the early 70s, about 73. You, 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 you handed your dissertation in. You're now Dr. Roberts. Are you a single man or are you married? No, I was single until I was 42. Okay, so you're a single man teaching at Northern. You're back for your second year there. And once again, you're taking a psychedelic LSD Almost on a monthly basis. Well, it wasn't always LSD. Oh. I got on some um, on peyote once. Okay. And uh, some THC tabs. Um, Tell us about the peyote experience, if you can uh, re- remember that well, far back. I had been warned that it was very bitter. And so I made a milkshake uh, out of uh, ice cream and ground up the uh, peyote in it and, uh, and drank it that way. It was not bitter. 
And what kind of experience did you have, and how would you contrast it with the LSD experience? I wouldn't. I would say it was just more of the same. More of the same. Yeah. Okay. I think I must have had mescaline in some some place in there too. Mm-hmm. Probably some shrooms. And did you did you settle on some kind of a protocol, Tom? Like where you took it, the set and setting back in those days, uh, or did you? Yes. What did it tell us? I take it in in my apartment where I was living, um, and then after two or three years, I moved to a different apartment, and would take it in and go walking out in some some empty area near the campus. Um, I'm very much like um, um, nature in my trip. I'm a day tripper, not a night tripper. I know a lot of people like night trips, and I am definitely a day tripper. I like nature. And I like trees and birds and grass and, and everything that has to do with nature. So, um, And where I would live, I would go out outside to some extent. And if I were in an apartment that was near a natural area, I would definitely go there. So I... I um, and you were often growing up in a woodsy part of Connecticut, so uh-huh. I feel very at home in the nature. And um, it sounds like very frequently on these monthly trips, you you took the uh, the LSD alone. Probably more more alone than with somebody. Okay, and I, I got into music for the first time too. Uh huh. That was a, a new experience for me. Um, that was my my um, in January of my first year here. That would have been January 1971. Uh, I bought a stereo, and a, a student whose stereo had been stolen lent me his record collection. And I, I had never heard or participated in music before. That was a wonderful discovery point, an absolute something I didn't expect at all, the way psychedelics can do that for you. And in part, and some types of music I didn't think I would like. Um, uh, there was a, he had a, quite a wild collection, and it included, among other things, um, Gregorian chants. And I never would have thought that I would have gotten into Gregorian chants, but I did. And he, there was a collection of records records called Best Hits of Wagner, Best Hits, Hits of Chopin, and that's and I got into that series too. So I, I really can understand, you know, people getting very involved in music now. Yes, I, I can remember from one of my early experiences, I put on a Kamina Barana, and uh, oh, it, wow. it, it had a huge impact on me. Uh, how about, how uh, about uh, Putin inside the dome of Taj Mahal? Oh, <laughs> no, <Isn't that> no. <laughs> so Leo Zeff that I referenced before, in addition to uh, blindfolds, very often had the person uh, wear uh, a pair of stereo earphones, and he had music that he played. And uh, in my case, he very often played Beethoven. And um, you heard at the beginning of the program, you know, here it is, you know, 30 years later, <laughs> I'm starting my program with Beethoven. It made a big impact. But what it also taught me, and I'm interested in your opinion on this, is that under the influence of LSD, I seemed much more suggestible to the music it felt like instead of just listening to the music, I seemed to become the music. Yes. It, it seemed to just be in every little cell of mine. And then I got one time, I got all wrapped up in the intensity of the concentration that Beethoven must have had 
in order to put all these pieces together. I came away, you know, just very impressed, hugely impressed by the by his concentration of mind. So that was fun. Yeah, I, I I didn't pick up on that, but I certainly I certainly can understand that. Yeah. But I saw on your but, face you related to the music taking over rather than just listening. In which you feel sort of become the music. Yes. Uh, the piece that really stands out for me was, um, I think it must have been a recorder quintet. Um, I, I like the less woody sounds of of, of the woodwinds and anyway, particularly recorders. And I, I really could see that there were separate voices, and they were and sometimes they were, they were blended, and then one would come out and two would sing together. And I, I, that's the first time I sort of really experienced that aspect of music. It was really just just astounding to me. Did you ever eat d- during the uh, LSD experience? Yes, for good and for bad. Um, Tell us. For, for, well. Um, I would have, I'd have like you know chocolate bit cookies or some something kicking around. Try that a piece of fruit and and uh, and fresh nuts, particularly cashew nuts, which are fine. And then one day, um, I um, I had um, um, oh um, that, that Greek um, sort of sandwich. I can't think of the name of it. Spanakopita. No. No. Um, anyway. I had one, and I ate a lot, and um, 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 it was not a good day, a trip for me. So I was having a trip in my GI tract, and I felt beginning to feel nauseous. I thought, oh God, I'm tripping, and I'm going to be sick. This is, and I said, I'm going to. I imagine myself having this terrible, sick experience, tripping. You know, not just tripping, but but being sick, tripping. I mean, it'd be like super barf. And I, it was just terrible. So I, I bent over the, the wash of the toilet paper and let it go, and it all came out. And that was it. Okay. Yeah. I had scared myself into this big experience. And, and um, um, Euro, Euro sandwich, that's what I'm thinking of. Um, and my Euros and, and baklava came up with it, you know, and it was gone, and suddenly I was all right. So an example of how I could scare myself on, on my expectations. What are some of the things during those early years, we're still in the 1970s um, at Northern Illinois, what are some of the things that you can share with our listeners and readers that you learned about yourself and the world? Well, let me tell you a funny little anecdote first. Good. A friend of mine and I were tripping. It was fairly late at night, and we'd been listening to records decided to turn on the radio. I turned on the radio. We turned in right in the middle of an ad that was on the radio, and we turned on the radio. And the voice we heard was, "Knock, knock, knock! I'm the sheriff around here, and you're in a heap of trouble, boy." <laughs> it was you can imagine what that did. I mean, we there was there was a like, second of terror, and then we realized it was quote just an ad. So, <laughs> um, well. It's hard to, I, I um, was reading at this time, there wasn't a lot to read. There was Gene Houston's book, um, I read that. Um, there must have been some other things. Uh, John, Stan Gross' book hadn't come out yet. I think that was 1975. Um, 
Good Food and Bacalar Psychedelic Drugs Reconsidered came out about then. And I read that and I still use it as a, as a reference. It was the best collection of materials that I know of up to that period. And if I want to look up something, uh, the background of something, I'll do psychedelic drugs reconsidered. Um, I don't remember much of that. Um, uh, and of course, I've had so many trips, they all sort of amalgamate together in my mind. Yes. And we've been talking mostly about positive experience, in fact, exclusively. Did you have some that were less than positive, or did you have some that were frightening? Um, slightly, but not to what I hear other people describing. Um I had done something that I wished at the time I hadn't done, and I felt very guilty about that one trip. At the and, same time... And I, so the I, the guilt, you were faced with the guilt during the experience? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and at that time, it must have been a little later, because I read Stan Gross' book, and he talks about these collections of emotions in our unconscious. He calls them coaxes which are uh, collections of emotions of the same sort, like guilt, fear, uh, positive ones. And I knew I was in one of those. So I could appreciate that I, that I was guilty and that I was getting into this clump of guilt. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, and, and that helps explain sort of why our reactions are not just the event itself, but it, it's the other events that are similar in emotional tone. So I can really see that. Um, Did you get in touch with a part of yourself, if you have that part? I know I do. That's critical or judgmental, and you found yourself criticizing or judging yourself? I'm tempted to say yes, but I really can't think of instances on that. You might be one of these very fortunately self-benign people. (laughs) Maybe. Um, Because... Because, you know, we, we hear stories, and certainly I've worked with patients who have gone through psychedelic experiences that are coming to me for after the post-experience work, who have had, you know, what's called a, a bad trip. But those of us, uh, you know, who have been studying it, involved with it as clinicians, we recognize that a bad trip is really a, an opportunity because you'd, it's an opportunity to deal with stuff that you feel is bad about yourself or that you feel is scary. And so here's a chance to face it, conquer it, and come out with mastery. Yes, yes, yes. Um, um, that's, I'm a little concerned that there is a company now who wants to take people on psychedelic trips but has something to sort of interrupt a bad trip. It seems to me that will interrupt the psychotherapy aspect. Of it. Totally. It's going to be a good move. Right. We don't want to interrupt them. We want to let them come all the way out so we can look at them together and, as I said, conquer and master. Yeah. In 1968 or 67, I was on sabbatical, um, living in Sausalito at that time, and I got into a grief coax. Um, and all the things that I had lost, people you know, people I had lost and things and you know how you think you, you you lost something in someone, and then the, another memory comes up, another memory, and I exhibited this grief complex, and I was crying, and I let myself cry. I wanted to let myself sort of squeeze out all the the tears in me, 
So I really got into it, into the, the activity of crying. And I could think of all these people and, I, and things and events that I had lost. And um, uh, I was crying and there was a knock on my door. And you're not supposed to open the door if somebody knocked in the curtain, but I did. Right. And there was one of my friends and he saw I was crying. Like with girls, they would say, what's the matter, dear? Oh, what's, with friends, you, you don't pay attention, right? So he saw I was crying, he didn't say anything. He said, you want to go out for a pizza? Okay. <laughs> so I went out with my friend for, I interrupted that, the, the growth, the grief feeling of that. Yeah. My friend, okay. Mm-hmm. Pizza was quite strange, and the pepperoni was moving around. <laughs> I've, never, I've never had a pizza that tasted that good. Oh, man. Well, I came back, Mom, that time I was sort of down, but I had this unresolved yes. complex of grief. Yes. So the next day, uh, next month, I was, I was walking along. There used to be a character in Little Abner car- cartoon strip of this guy. He had a cloud over his head. It was always raining on him. Mm-hmm. I felt that that I, I functioned. I gave lectures and I did some work, but I didn't feel happy about it. So I finally decided... All right, I'm going to get in there and, and resolve that coex. So I got some more LSD and I took it. I was looking forward to like a, a miserable day of all the things I had lost and you know, and all those sort of things. And I, I sort of got in the coex and resolved it probably in about two minutes. And it was a wonderful, glorious, sunny day. And I was living in a houseboat in Sausalito. It was just glorious. So, so I had been under that unresolved coex. Finally, resolved it rather quickly. Oh, that's a good story. So, by the way, I found that very helpful. Talk to my students because they're they're in their twenties and twenty-one, and they're at the say, often age of breaking up relationships and things not going right. And I could I would explain that that, that it's okay to feel those emotions, you know. And this is what this is you're experiencing not only what happened to you, but the other things that are associated with that sort of thing. So that's why your emotions are sometimes so strong. I think it was helpful for them to get some perspective on themselves. Tremendously helpful. You were giving them permission to have human feelings, which, yeah, which yeah, is you and I both know. Right. Yes. Uh, you and I both know with our inheritance from the English, you know, yeah. we have a culture of stiff upper lip and keep it all in, which our profession teaches us creates problems. Because the stuff bag gets so full, we feel like we're going to burst with emotion walking around with the stiff upper lip. So that may be the most important emotional thing I've learned from psychoanalysis, is to let your emotions be. To let your emotions be. Mm -hmm. To feel them. Okay, we're in the 70s now. Take us forward. You've been taking LSD now once a month for several years. You're learning, you're growing, you're teaching. What happened? And then uh, maybe take us now towards what year was the first book you wrote about psychedelics? Because you've written so many. Well, I edited a book, I edited a book on educational psychology and another one on personal growth methods. Um, well, actually, I started teaching my course before I wrote the book. That was in, I'm not sure if it was 1981 or 82. Um, the honors course in psychedelics? Yeah, it didn't start out being honors. So it was just a regular educational psychology course. I see. And uh, But I it, I, did I get it right, though? It was the first university catalog course on psychedelics? Uh, almost right. I've discovered since then, since then 
that uh, Jerry Brown, who was at Florida International University, um, and in fact is, is, is going back from retirement to teaching a course there now, taught a course in psychedelics. It was a sort of in the anthropology of religion angle. Uh-huh. So that's, that's the angle he, that he took on that. Um, where, is he, where is he now, Tom? Well, um, actually he lives in Portugal, but he's teaching an online course for Florida International University. Thank He'd you. He's a very good person to, to visit. He, he wrote a book called the, the Christian Psychedelic Gospels or something like that. Do you have his email? Yeah, sure. Okay, maybe after the show, maybe you or you could write a little introduction for me, and I'll I'll talk. Oh, you too. I think we'll hit it off beautifully. Oh, thank you, thank you. Um, so I forgot where I was. On the course, the the course, yes. Okay, so um, I submitted a course as those special topics courses, you know, that all departments have, and um, it'd be special readings in or workshop in or you know numbered titles, and I had one and called them. Psychedelic research. It was open to both graduates and undergraduates. I think it's met at night. Um, I, I had a problem with that course. One with the graduates thought it was going to be a bull session of talking about psychedelics. And I had them read, read and write papers and make presentations. It wasn't just a Mickey Mouse course. Um, so after a while, um, uh, I found out some students were afraid of it because the name of research was in it. And they thought they'd have to um, understand um, quantitative or quali- quantitative research, and they were not mathematically oriented. So I changed it to psychedelic mind view, and I used that for a while. Um, and then somewhere along, after probably 75, 70, no, 85, 86, um, I taught it w- a one shot in the honors program, and it really was um, it fit me well, the honors program did, and my course fit the honors program. They had a series of seminars called honors seminars, and they were from honors students had to take one or two of these um, in order to get an honors degree. And they were from students from all across campus. So I had, you know, people from engineering and the arts and dietary stuff and nurses and all kinds of people. It was a wonderfully mixed class. And we started off with only 15 students and then went up to 20. Do, did, did you, excuse me, did you share with the students that you'd had experiences, personal experiences with psychedelics? Yes. Part of my, part of my syllabus, and I would say this, is that I would be talking about my own psychedelic experiences, but I was not modeling what I expected them to do. And it was not privileged communication, like with a psychiatrist or a lawyer or a clergyman. And um, they could or could not talk about their own if they wanted to, but they might want to say, I heard this, or somebody told me this, or I hear so forth. Um, and I would you, say, you did, probably only three had exactly those experiences. And you did not get attacked by anyone on the faculty? The university didn't come after you? Uh, I mean, it's such an incredibly courageous thing to do, particularly back then. Yes. I mean, it's it's you know I'm not having the easiest time getting elders in their 80s to come out about psychedelic experiences 60 years ago, and here you are 50, 40, 50 years ago, telling the campus in the, that that you're that you've taken these things. It's uh, how did you manage to do that? I mean, share with us. Uh, well, um, I had sort of an odd coming out of the 
coming out of the psychedelic closet experience. Um, the summer of a, one of the summers, I um, when I was on sabbatical, I went down to Esalen for a month long with Sand Groff, and uh, one of the people there was James Bachelor, called Jake Bachelor, um, who was a, a co-author with Lester Greenspoon of Psychedelic Drugs Reconsidered. And they were putting to, together a book called Psychedelic Reflections. And they asked people who had done psychedelics to write a chapter for the book. And they asked me to write a chapter. So I wrote a chapter about my own psychedelic experiences. And it was published in 1982. And this is the first time I had publicly talked about uh, taking psychedelics. And how I managed all kinds of things. I thought, what will my colleagues think? What will they think across campus? What will the personnel committee think? And I know, well, I got telephone calls from the board of trustees, and the book came out. Yawn. <laughs> no response. Yawn. Yes, right. Um, so, um, so at that point, I felt sort of more open to talk about my own experience. Um, and um, what do you make of that yawn? Did they simply not read it, or they didn't care, or you were too distinguished to mess with, or? <laughs> no. um, I, well, they didn't read it. But, but I think they knew it was out there. And I think they probably figured, well, here's this guy who's been teaching this course for a couple of years. We guessed as much. I think that's probably the uh-huh. response. And now, okay, okay, he confirmed what we thought we knew anyway. But now, also, yeah. education is an interesting, um, intellectually open period. In most departments, you have to be like this type of political scientist, this type of social scientist, this type of psychologist. And you have to sort of fit in with a departmental model. Education is not like that. It's a very open-minded field. As long as what you're working for is the improvement of the human mind associated with schools, you, they don't really, you, you can have conflicting ideas. And so the fact that I was coming from this odd position wasn't really strange in the College of Education. Well, I, was, I was unique, but... Um, that wasn't especially strange, and I couldn't have gotten away with that in psychology or sociology. Oh, or, Tom, or, or, Tom, or, Tom I, was, I was lucky to be in the College of Education. You, you were lucky and you were smart. I've got to tell you, when I was teaching at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, uh, I, I don't know if they actually hired me as a token existentialist or what the reasoning was, but the fact that I was not psychoanalytic was it, 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 it was not a happy position to be in oh, yes, let, let alone yes. uh, let alone taking a, a psychedelic substance yeah sure so yes, uh, were you continuing uh through the 1980s to take LSD on a somewhat regular basis or did it drop off or tell us more about your experience in the 1980s uh, as you're going into you're becoming close to 40 or 40 ish yeah um, I definitely took it started taking much less often um, I, I mean as, as Alan Watts said when you, once you got the message hang up the phone well, I've always believed that also, Tom, but I have to refer you to Dr. Alan Ajaya, uh, who lives in... Do you know Alan? Yes, we're friends. Okay, so you know, Alan has taken LSD 900 times. Oh, I didn't uh, know that. Yes, I interviewed him on this program, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, and I said to Alan, did you reach a saturation point? And he looked me straight in the eye and he said, 
there's always more to learn. Well, I think I would have to take Alan's position on that. Yeah, I agree with him on that. Um, but, uh, also, um, I was married in 1982, so I said started a relationship in 1980-81. Uh, my wife is not against psychedelics, but I mean, I had, you know, a family to take care of, and uh, so my my activities were not as, as free as they've been previously. And I still took psychedelics, but also, um, you know, I started more working, uh, doing work on uh, scholarly writing kind of work with psychedelics. I don't know whether that was uh, sublimation or what it is, but at any rate, um, my my interest in uh, psychedelics dropped off, and so now I'm in my you know 80s, and I'm probably 70s or let's see, 70s, 80s, probably no more than half a dozen times in both those decades. Oh, also, really? Um, well, my my liver and my kidneys are not what they used to be, so I don't want to. Um, you know, challenge them. Uh, well, talk to us something about that now, from a scholarly perspective. Do you have reason to suspect that uh, lysergic acid, diethylamide, is uh, is uh, rough on the kidneys or the liver or other no, internal? No, uh, actually, I don't have a reason. So that, that may be a rationalization. I know DMT is supposed to be difficult on the heart, and I have a pacemaker. So I'm, I'm sorry not to have done DM, DMT. He, I have done ayahuasca, though. Yes. Um, well, do you have reason to believe, based on all your studies, 60 years now, personal and professional, all the books and lectures and talks and around the world uh, uh, sharing information, do you have reason to believe that there are um, negative side effects of LSD uh, physiologically? No. On the other hand, that's not an area that I consider myself up on. No, but you've, t you've, you've, okay, I understand. It's not your specialty, but you have an opinion on. Because, you know, I asked Dave Nichols the question of mortality, and Dave said there is not a case on record of a person dying from taking LSD. Well, I, I'm a great admirer of Dave. And if he said, for instance, among the people I know, people have a, a disagreement, and somebody said, well, Dave Nichols says this, that sort of resolves it. Yes, I, I, I'm with you on that. Um, so we've talked some about LSD, uh, you, and, and uh, you said peyote early on. Uh, we, we heard something about marijuana early on. Um, and now you just mentioned ayahuasca, uh, tell us something about your ayahuasca experience. Um, these were at a um, uh, in Brazil at a, um, uh, a I guess to call it a resort or retreat center, not jungly type place at all. Um, and I was um, co-leading um, uh, um, a two-week session there, um, and. Um, um, I had ayahuasca four times, um, and we took it together at a large room, and I guess there must have been 25 or 30 of us and um, at, at night, and we each had our own little pads to lie on with a bucket next to them in case we needed to barf. And um, the, the leader of the group, 
um, would let us take people, take whatever dosage I felt um, comfortable with. I didn't want to challenge my GI tract at both ends simultaneously. <laughs> so I took, um, I wanted to take a weak dose, but I think I took a, probably a moderate dose four different times. I wish now I had had a stronger doses. One of the things we did was um, people would say around, my intent for this trip is to do such and such, I'm going to think about this, and people would go around. My intent was always just to take and see what happens, rather than say, I want to work on this problem and think about this relationship. I prefer, I prefer to do psychedelics that way, to take them, see where my mind is, and you know, see what happens. I found that anticipating what I plan to do does not work very well. So for it, I think um, I'm going to look at this beautiful crystal when I'm tripping. And instead, I saw my name kind of looking at the back of my thumbnail. You know, that I just sort of let what happened happen rather than direct myself in a particular direction. And so on those trips, I just took moderate doses. I'd lie down. They were um, moderately psychedelic, maybe 100 microgram equivalents or 80 or something like that. Definitely, I definitely think, but I wish now. I had at least one good strong dose. You, you just mentioned um, an, an purposefully going in open rather than going in with an agenda. And I recall you took the same approach uh, way back in the beginning when you told us that you purposely did not read up on it first because you wanted to see without being influenced what the effect was. And I tip my hat uh, to you for that, uh, for taking beginner's eyes and letting your own being uh, respond, react, and uh, be involved with the substance rather than be influenced. I had a copy of Gene Houston and Bob Masters' book at that time, but I didn't read it until I got back. (laughs) (laughs) And it made more sense to me, I'm sure, than if I'd read it before. Did you regurgitate when you took the ayahuasca? No, but I did learn um, what the word putrid means in terms of taste. And it really, I've never had anything that be qualified so much as just putrid. And we followed up by sucking on either a lemon or a lime, which is a wonderful idea. I really recommend that. Get the taste out of it. I, well, I had a friend who went on a ayahuasca trip, and he said it didn't taste bad at all. I don't know how. Yeah, I don't know how either. Uh, and I interviewed Stephen Beyer. You know Stephen Beyer? He's an ethnobotanist who wrote Talking to the Plants. I know the name, but I don't yeah. know. And I asked him directly about uh, the emetic properties of ayahuasca. And he said, it's definitely an emetic. The way it came about was that the natives uh, did not have uh, refrigeration. Uh, they were subject to uh, spoiled food and terrible stomach disorders. And they just quite naturally looked for substances that would cause them to regurgitate, and they hit upon this. Uh, and then it happened to also have the psychoactive pro- properties. I personally don't care for ayahuasca. I, I've like yourself, I've had it uh, three times. But the uh, the side effect of regurgitation is a is a turnoff for me. Uh, it reminds me of a, a funny incident. Um, now the question is, how did people ever discover? you have to use the bark of a vine and the leaf of a tree? <laughs> How would you run across that at random, you know? And I thought I was about to find out the answer. 
I was visiting Richard Schultes up in his attic at the Harvard Botanical Museum. Oh, my word. If, any, if anybody knows this, this is something Schultes would know. Right. So I asked him, and he looked at me as if I asked a question as important as, like, what size are your shoes? He had no, he was interested in the botany. He was not interested in the the um, anthropology of it at all. Uh-huh. He said, I don't know. Like, just... Like I'd ask some like May Barrel pen, and it's just the, the question had no meaning to him. And I thought if anybody would know that, that's the guy who would know. I think it's a great question. My, I'm going to speculate that the answer is they tried everything possible, combining everything possible over hundreds of years, and some <laughs> things worked and some didn't. <laughs> well, from the shaman answer, they say the plants told us. Yeah, the plants are right. I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't either. I don't either. So, what about personal experience? Do you have children, Tom? I have a daughter who is now 36. And uh, did you introduce her? She must know that Dad experiments with these substances. What, where is she at with regard to them? Without outing her, we don't need to know her name, if you don't want. Well, um... Uh, you know, my books and, and art were all over the house all the time. Of course. That. Um, we actually never, I'm really, it was sort of something Dad did. Um, and I have actually no idea whether she'd done psychedelics or not. Mm-hmm. Um, she knows I wouldn't disapprove if she did. And this other, in that sense, I want that to be her decision. Now, she may very well have. Do people ever come to you and say, would you recommend that I experiment, that I try these substances? Um, and if so, what's your answer? In other um, words, do you recommend them? Um, I, I recommend um, to Stan Groff's um, main book, Realms of the Human Unconscious, so that they can understand what's going on. And also, I tell them that... Um, if they're going to do it, they should do it with someone that they trust, someone they like, they can be with. Um, that they should do it when their life is going well, and not to be surprised if they have a bad trip or a good trip. That that it, a lot of it comes from their unconscious, and they basically don't know what's going on in their unconscious. They have to be willing to to accept it. And I and I, I tell people like in my class, you can have a really best trip you ever had, and you can be really terrified um, of whatever it is you can expect. And I find Grant's book, Realms of the Human Unconscious, it has new titles now. I use that in my class as standard reading. And I think that was the best survey of the type of things one can experience. It's a little too bad that he was a psychiatrist working with people who had major problems. I wish he had had a larger normal sample. But still, that gives a good idea of what's possible. What do you see um, as you look into the far future regarding uh, uh, the culture and the use of psychedelic substances? Um, I think um, the big thing for psychedelics is being missed, and that's their use in in, in intellectual fields. Um, I think the medicine, um, um, neurology stuff is just the beginning of what I see as a, as a, a progress of ideas. Um, we run across that in, in 
the use of the what are called the by psychedelics and theogens, and the work on psychotherapy, of course, is that the mystical experience is often the psychotherapeutic experience, but this is also a religious experience, so it gets people interested in religion. I'm, I'm one of the people who got interested in religion, not in a particular church, or but religion has something to be interested in psychologically, <coughs> thanks to psychedelics. That is definitely one of the big effects of my psychedelic experiences, to take religion seriously. Um, but um, the what happens is then, as people start exploring uh, mystical experiences, that moves them up to the realm of, of religion. And as people explore that, um, they get into these experiences like, this is real, this is really real, this is realer than real. Or, <laughs> I've never felt and seen such beauty before, or I have a sense of sacred, you know, those those abstract qualities that people feel. And this moves us up to the liberal arts and the humanities. And it's now possible to do experimental psychology on the sense of reality. For example, we can have, we can do use psychedelics, give, give people um, either a weakened sense of reality, this is all imaginary, or an intense sense of reality. So can do experimental philosophy on the sense of reality and truth. We've probably all had insights during our psychedelic experience that we thought, wow, this is a wonderful insight. And find out the next day it probably isn't. There's <laughs> something about the sense of truth. What What is that sense of truth? And it can be turned up and down. And sacredness and beauty and gratitude and blessedness. Now, I've made up this imagination we have sort of a real state of our minds. And just like in the, in the home, we can turn the rheostat up to make it hotter or turn it down to make it colder. This rheostat turns up these abstract, I call them um, cognitive qualia, like truth and beauty, goodness, and so forth. We can intensify that and we can weaken that. And that makes it possible to do experimental philosophy in those questions. Or experimental aesthetics is what you're talking about in beauty or experimental religion. This is the direction I think that psychedelics really should take. Uh, I can't, I can't, can't imagine how it would happen because we have protocols set up for psychedelic psychotherapy. What would a protocol be for psychedelic religion, or even yet, a protocol for English majors or social majors who want to have psychedelic experiences? And yet, this is the way of coming up with new ideas. And I think that we need this, and to develop the world of ideas psychedelics um, and um, I don't see a way of solving those questions but these are questions our culture has to take actually to be realistic um, some of our students and our colleagues and ourselves you know in academia are doing psychedelics now we just don't talk about and are getting ideas from them and thinking about our fields differently so it, it's a I think they um, intellectual angle on psychedelics is what really should be pursued with one ex one other exception which is even greater and that's problem solving the sort of thing that Jim Fadiman is talking about because every field has problems and problem solving should work across fields the way it did that with that old study from 1966 that Willis Harmon was the primary author of and Jim was one of the co-authors um, and that's the biggest field, is, is problem solving. And probably the second biggest field is um, intellectual and developing new ideas and inventing new ideas. Well, that's what my mind asks is, is tries to do, is to get that. 
I'm trying to interest people in the liberal arts and sciences and the humanities and psychedelics. That's an uphill slog, but it's happening little by little. Tom is referencing his book, Mind Apps. You want to check that one out for sure. I think you did that with Jim Fadiman, didn't you? No. He with wrote who? The preface. He wrote the preface. Thank you for that. Oh, oh. He wrote the foreword. That's I see. Thank I knew he was involved. Mind apps, everybody. You definitely want to check that out. There's a sort of sad story about that, though. Um, in publishing it, I made a big mistake, the publisher made a big mistake, and together we made a big mistake. Okay. My mistake was that what should be the first chapter should have been a preface, and one of the editors suggested that, and I said, no, I'm using the first chapter. It would have been a much better preface because it's really a little intellectual autobiography. That's my mistake. Um, their mistake was that the book is classified. It's really about mind and psychology, but it's classified as spirituality and entheogens. And so people who are who go to a bookstore who look for interest in books on the mind would not go to the religion uh-huh. because they're misqualified. It's misfiled in religion. And the the mistake that I made and the authors make is we didn't put the word psychedelic in the title. It's a book about psychedelics, but it's not in the title. And people see this weird mind, mind apps, a word I coined. They have no idea what it's like, and they just go look elsewhere. So the book is out there saying, read me, read me, and nobody's reading it. Well, we're telling people now, read it, read it, Mind App by Dr. Thomas Roberts. Thank you. It's very readable, too. I wrote it to be readable. This issue of creativity has fascinated me, too, because we know that people like Watson and Creek, we know that Carl Sagan, we know Steve Jobs, they did amazing uh, uh, work in creativity under the influence of LSD, but they, they they didn't talk about it because uh, I think for the most part they were afraid to talk about it. I do believe, I do believe Carl Sagan's wife uh, revealed it to the public only after he died. And yeah. so there is still that uh, that concern, and that's of course why I'm pointing you out as being courageous, going back going back sixty years, if you don't mind my outing you. And and that, by the way, what you're talking about, you know, the intellectual uh, uh, benefits that we can get and creativity is the reason that I'm doing this series called Confessions of Psychedelic Elders, because I'm hoping that by by elders coming out and acknowledging that they've been using these substances for the year, for years and using them safely it will make it um a more make these substances more available more people will will see that as you pointed out earlier in our our, uh, our meeting today they're not being taken exclusively by a bunch of people with weird eyes crazy clothes strange hair and green skin right that they're just normal every day and they can be part of everyday life uh, my next question for you, we're sort of coming to the end of our uh, of our lovely conversation, is the issue of crossing over. And by crossing over, what I mean is bringing material back from the psychedelic experience into everyday life. Do you have any tactics that you might share? Were you a note taker? Do, do you tape things? What methods do, do, do you recommend and or where can people study on how to not just have this be an isolated experience like a ride in the park, but also be something that over time they make part of their daily lives? Um, my experience with creativity is not that I have ideas during the psychedelic experience. 
but my mind is more open to thinking of novel things afterwards. And I think that's the way it works with most people. Um, I, I think artists and um, musicians probably would be more taking carrying ideas back. For example, um, Kerry Mullis's idea for the PCR technique that he got a um, Nobel Prize for is an example. He learned during his psychedelic experiences to visualize. And he carried the skill of visualization back into his ordinary state and could use that skill to come up with the PCR technique. And I think it's a cognitive skills, at least with me, that transferred more than particular content. Um, I suppose different people's minds work differently on this aspect. Um, it's it's like the the question of remembering dreams. And we can get up, wake up in the morning and know we had a dream and not remember it. In my case, it often sort of downloads about ten thirty in the morning. I'm something will click off the memory, and it'll download. Um, and with psychedelics, um, I don't know that that it's the experience itself, but the sort of um, mental agility that it provides that makes it worthwhile. Um, again, I expect people are very different on this. Yeah. I don't have, actually, creativity is the first thing I got interested in when I, when I was in fourth grade. I wanted to be an inventor. I asked my mother, how do you learn to be an inventor? So I mean, that's the fourth grade question on creativity. And in college, I studied creativity. So um, this is still carrying that that on. Um, now I'm in my 80s. I have one last question, Tom. Um, I've been personally honored uh, to be asked to join a uh, psychedelic research startup. And the people who asked me to join are colleagues of yours, who I think some of whom you know, if not all, for many years. Uh, Dr. Nick Cozy, Dr. Paul Daly, and Dr. Rick Strassman. And we are involved in something, in a, in a startup called the Alexander Shulgin Research Institute, which just reminds me, I didn't ask you about your experiences with, uh, um, with MDMA today. Uh, maybe we should come back to it. But the question I have for you is, what would you like to see us do if you could wave your wand about what we create in this laboratory? What new molecules to have what effect, and you can wave your wand and point, and then we're going to go into that lab and do it. What would you like to see? Other, other than continue on what Sasha was doing, um, and that's not that's not a satisfactory answer. Um, I would like to see molecules that can be used um, intellectually. On the, other, on the other hand, we have those molecules. Maybe the thing to do is to figure out protocols for how to use these molecules. Um, let's say in, uh, say a graduate seminar in English. How could we use these these molecules, and the ones invented and the new ones, to help English majors understand uh, what the romantics meant by the word sublime? I had that experience at a conference in Iceland. Um, I, I was looking out, um, tripping, although actually it was not on LSD. Um, it was on relaxation and imagery. And I realized that I think I knew what the romantic poet meant by the word sublime, or how to analyze um, uh, poetry um, and writing from a psychological perspective. Uh, I think the big questions are 
are not so much the inventing of drugs, but how to use them in safe ways uh-huh. in religion and intellectual work. Thank you. And whether there should be new, new conjures or what it would mean, I, I just don't know. So now we're at a time where if we would have stopped here, I would have said later, gosh, I wish I would have asked Tom, but now I'm remembering while we're still here, so I'm going to ask you. Any experience with MDMA? Yes, um, probably four or five different experiences back when it was legal. And anything you, what do you want to share with us about MDMA? Well, it's, it's a wonderful heart chakra kind of experience. Um, very warm and loving, and um, um, I really don't consider it a psychedelic. Right. Um, um, it, I, I consider it, I think that the psychedelic family, which is basically LSD, peyote, mescaline, and ayahuasca, and their their relations, and then I'd say that the I'd say that the psychedelic family has uh, uh, adopted MDMA as a member. Yes. So the so of course um, Rick uses that uses that in terms of psychedelics um, with maps, and that's fine. Um, we just it's not a real psychedelic, but it's been adopted into the family. Well, thank you. Myron yes. um, uh, Stolarov came with the idea of if somebody's going to take a psychedelic experience, to let them have an MDMA, MDMA experience first to see if they're comfortable with altered states. And if they're not, then no LSD experience. And if they are, then you can take them on to LSD. Ah, there's wisdom in that, and I thank you. Well, thank you very much for being with me today, Tom. Well, it's thanks. been this is fun. Well, I'm glad it was fun. It's been very educational. Much appreciate your being here. Uh, we can get you a copy of uh, of the uh, of the broadcast should you like. Charlie Dice will do it. And um, should you be out here on the coast, we have a beautiful guest room um, uh, for you and your wife, and you'd be most welcome to join us. Thank you. And I'll send out the um, URL to my friends and lists. Okay, and you're going to introduce me to Jerry Brown as well. Oh, thank you for reminding me. Yes, I'll do that right away. And thank you all for joining me for today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics with special thanks to our producers, Charlie Deist and Pamela Bieri, and our IT director, James Albaro. They make this broadcast possible. This preceding program was brought to you by the Thanksgiving Coffee Company. The founder is my dear friend, Paul Katzif. He's a social worker and political activist who has literally improved the lives of millions of coffee growers around the world. How does he do it? Because he gets them some real money for their work, whereas before he came along, they were starving and others were making a fortune on coffee. Paul has created three special Mind, Body, Health, and Politics coffee blends and donates 20% of the internet sales of the Mind, Body, Health, and Politics blends to the COVID Response Network. Check that out on Google, COVID Response Network. It's a nonprofit 501c3 whose mission is to protect California's North Coast from injuries and deaths caused by COVID-19 and its variants. Please go to the coffee company, Thanksgiving Coffee Company website, buy Mind, Body, Health, and Politics coffee, and support this important COVID response network. Please join me next Tuesday at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time for our next stimulating 
broadcast. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it is essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.